We carry on in this glorious gospel of God, the exposition of Luke, and we're going to close out this chapter today. And last week, we were confronted with the great miracle of the Lord Jesus healing ten lepers. And specifically, we saw in this great miracle the heart of the Lord, the power of the Lord, and the glory of his grace and mercy that can be received. It can be received by those who are given the great gift of living and saving faith so that they come out of their brokenness seeking mercy from the only one who can give it, and that's Jesus. And we saw that Jesus delights to receive the broken and the dirty and the needy. And he gives them grace. And what we saw in the midst of this glorious miracle was the power of that grace received that then rises up in a life of praise expressed in thankfulness. And this grace of peace that Christ gives, it comes forth and manifests itself in worship. So that the watching world knows that this changed one, this one eclipsed by God's grace in Christ is giving all praise to the object of that faith, the one who saves, Jesus. Because such a person knows that they were unclean and they were on the outside. And it was the great gospel grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is on the inside, the one who is clean to become an outsider by going to the cross, becoming an outsider to the Holy Father so that the child of grace might come in and might be known and might have fellowship with God, might have the the glorious reality of sonship and daughtership and the family of God. That's what we saw. And now as Jesus presses on to Jerusalem, he's headed all the way, all the way to the cross, all the way to his passion. He once again is questioned by the Pharisees. They're wanting to know about the timing of the kingdom. They have nefarious motives, of course. And so once again, Jesus uses this opportunity to expose the Pharisees and their lack of understanding as well as their hard hearts. But then he pivots and he teaches his disciples. And he uses an opportunity to to warn and to exhort and to raise them up in the truth, to prepare them. And so that's where we find ourselves. Luke chapter 17. Hear God's word starting at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will look, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was 
in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Amen. The reading of God's holy word. May he write it upon our hearts and souls forever and ever and ever. Well, I want you to think for a minute, especially those of you who are a little bit older, about some of the most popular books that predict, predicted the end of the age over the last 50 years. You know, there have been a lot of them written, a lot of them purchased, and they were utterly wrong. You think about the one written in 1970, the, the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, predicting the end and the coming. Well, it didn't happen. And then we have 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Kind of has a tricky ring to it, huh? Of course, didn't happen. And then Harold Camping's very popular book, 1994, question mark, with the prediction, the end of the world in 94. Well, we have to see, brothers and sisters, that people are obsessed with the end times. And there are those who would love to cash in on it with publishing. But we need to realize that this is nothing new. That in every generation that has gone before us, there have been many within the church obsessed with the end times and with the certainty that the end was in their generation. It was imminent. But you see, of course, only the Lord knows the day and the hour. And so Jesus encourages us. He exhorts us to be active in our faith and living out the Christian life. And we are to have an attitude of hopeful expectation as we live and love and serve and move in this world as his disciples. We must be diligent. As our Savior was diligent in his life on this earth, we must be diligent and serve and love and bear witness to the truth of the kingdom. Well, that brings us to our first main point this morning, the first of three. The true king brings the eternal kingdom, and where his spirit dwells, his kingdom grows. The true king brings the eternal kingdom, and where his spirit dwells, his kingdom grows. Isn't this the reality of what the Gospels are all about? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all about the reality, the clarion call, the gospel call, that the king has come, and he has brought with him the kingdom. I mean, think about it. 
John the Baptist came out of the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom comes. The king comes. And when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And what did Jesus do after he was baptized and tempted and did battle with the devil for 40 days in the wilderness? He came in preaching, entering into his public ministry. What was his message? Behold, the kingdom has come. You see, this is the message. And the reality is that every kingdom must have a king. And where the king is, there is the kingdom. And hallelujah, there is a kingdom message. And that's the gospel. The gospel of God. You see, the king wouldn't be a king without subjects. And so, hallelujah, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The glorious reality of the king and his kingdom. We must realize that everything that Jesus was doing in his public ministry was all about witnessing to the reality of who he is in his kingship. The glory of Christ the king. That by his mighty words, by his mighty deeds, he was manifesting the reality that he's not a king, but he's the king. And who is that king? He's the king of glory. He's the king of the universe. That's what we're confronted with. I mean, think about it. The absolute authority that Jesus exercised over life and death. He raised the dead. Who but the king of the universe could do such a thing? Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ, he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind, the king of the universe. He cast out demons. He controlled the wind and the waves. The king of the universe. You remember when Jesus was slandered by the Pharisees and they said, Look, see, he cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you see the finger of God casting out demons by the Spirit of God, you know that the kingdom has come. We have to see this and get this through our heads. The kingdom has come. Jesus has brought the kingdom. And of course, this enraged the Pharisees, this king, this message, this kingdom, because this was absolutely different than what they had in their conception of who the true king would be and what the true kingdom would be like. They were disgusted with Jesus. This king hangs out with tax collectors and sinners and Samaritans. Disgusted. Well, as we approach our holy text this morning, brothers and sisters, we need to see the glory that the king comes and he rebukes and he teaches and he warns and he exhorts about his kingdom. And we have to have the full-orbed idea and understanding of Jesus and his teaching about the kingdom. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he was teaching and preaching through the perspective and the, the power of the past and the present and the future, holding all things together in his mind. And we have to understand this as we hear his teaching and preaching about the kingdom and, and understand the, the aspects and the categories of his kingdom. You see, the, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the glory and the mystery of his incarnation. 
when he came forth, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, born into the world, this, this incarnation, this first advent, this is the inauguration of his kingdom. It's come. He was Lord and King at his birth, unlike any other baby. The inauguration of the kingdom, the glory of Christ, the God-man, and the glory of his active and passive obedience as he went forward, actively keeping the law of God as the king of righteousness, and passively suffering upon the cross for his people, so that on the cross he paid the sin debt of his people, the atoning sacrifice, and in the glory of his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, hallelujah, the kingdom inaugurated. What did Jesus do? He ascended to the right hand of power and glory and petitioned the Father to pour out the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the Spirit of Christ. And you see, in the midst of this glorious truth, we have the continuation of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. The kingdom of God is within you because where the spirit of the king is, there is his kingdom. And so we hear the gospel and God is pleased to give the gift of faith and the spirit fills our hearts. And each and every heart is a throne room. It's either enthroned with self or it's enthroned with the Savior. So that's where we're at right now. We're in the inauguration and the continuation of the kingdom of God as it grows secretly and mysteriously. One heart, one life, one family, one church, one community throughout the nations. So the kingdom's realized in the reign of Christ in the hearts of believers. And that bears witness to the reality that he reigns in heaven. And guess what? Because there's praise on earth. Christ is coming. So it points to the final reality of Jesus' second advent, his coming back in power and in glory. And that's what Jesus drives home in this text. The consummation of the kingdom. The consummation of the kingdom, the resurrected and ascended glorified king of kings. He returns on the great day of days, the end of the age, where there's the last battle and there is judgment upon the wicked, and there is vindication for the righteous, and the kingdom is forever and ever, the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. And so here we are. We're caught up in the mystery of this, in the tension of this, the already of the inauguration, the reality of the continuation, and the expectation of the consummation. There's tension. We're held in this. There's glory. There's joy. So as we consider the context of our scripture this morning, we see that everything that Jesus has done leading up to this point to the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords is manifested beautifully in what happens with the Samaritan. The leper, the unclean one, the outsider. He's miraculously and powerfully Healed and saved and sanctified. And what does he do? He comes back and throws himself on his face and offers up loud praise and worship. And what does Jesus do? He receives the worship because he is the king. 
He is the righteous one. And this is what the king does. He sets the captives free. He gives sight to the blind. He creates worshipers of God. He delivers us from the bondage of darkness in this fallen world and Satan, the prince of this world, and he liberates us and he liberates our praise. That's what he does. So the Pharisees respond to all of this with their sneering question, when will the kingdom come? Because they're angry, they're outraged, they have malice in their hearts towards Jesus. And, and you see, the, the Pharisees in their mind that the king and the kingdom would look nothing like this. Nothing like this man and nothing like his message and nothing like he was doing. Because what the Pharisees believed is that when Messiah would come, the king of Israel, he would be this glorious and grand warrior king who would come forth and gather together the righteous of Israel so that they could do battle. And that they could drive out pagan, satanic Rome and cleanse the promised land. And then having set up the throne of the king of Israel in the midst of the promised land, then they could go forth and make conquest of the nations. Conquering the Gentiles so that they would have to come in and offer subjugation to the king. Friends, this is Zionism, according to the Pharisees. But of course, the problem with this is Israel is broken. They've broken covenant with God. And, and it was never the Lord's plan to, to set up some kind of militaristic theocracy because both Jews and Gentiles desperately need the grace of God and forgiveness and the gift of righteousness. And we just sang that in our offertory. It was beautiful. Hallelujah. Well, so this is the plan. All along, God was planning to send forth the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king of God Most High to save and to sanctify his people and bring them into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. So how do we live, brothers and sisters, in the here and the now, growing and continuing in this kingdom reality? with hopeful expectation of the consummation, well, we must come alive more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must come alive more and more by his word and by his spirit to the kingdom reality. We must look for and long for the kingdom in the word of God and in our midst, in our prayers, in our praise, in our witness, and we must fan into flames the gift of the Holy Spirit the reality of the kingdom in our hearts and bear witness before the watching world. Share the good news. And we must cultivate a patient and hopeful attitude knowing that the kingdom is both present and future. The Lord has this. And we can rest assured. Well, hallelujah, we can do all of this because the king of kings came to save and to sanctify his people so that we might make it through this world of suffering and he holds us fast. That's our second thought. The true king inaugurated his kingdom by his passion to save and sanctify his people. He inaugurated the kingdom by his passion to save and sanctify his people. 
So verse 22, Jesus turns to directly speak to his disciples whom he loves, whom he is serving, and he gives them instructions and warnings, and he gives them a warning about suffering and the struggle of faith in the faithless world. He says, in the midst of what's coming, you will long for the days when I was in your presence physically. But take heart, take hope. There will be great suffering. There will be great persecution. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, is greater than the one who is in the world seeking to destroy you. Greater than your trials. Greater than your suffering. And of course, suffering did come because of Satan and his followers. Don't we see that in the the apocalyptic picture in Revelation? Satan goes to attack Jesus because he's the son of God and he's bringing in the kingdom. And he fulfills all righteousness and he goes forth to heaven. And so then what does Satan do? Even though he has been given the death blow, the mortal wound, he turns to harassing and attacking the church. Because he hates Christ. He hates the witnesses of Christ. Well, isn't this the fact? Christians suffer. Christians suffer persecution. Isn't this why John, at the end of the revelations, cried out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because of suffering, because of persecution? Remember, the apostles are right here listening to all this. And church history tells us that all of them, except for Judas who betrayed Jesus, and John the youngest, who died on the island of Patmos, all the others suffered martyrdom, according to church history. Violent, horrible deaths because of their witness of Christ the King. We face suffering. We face persecution. We face trials. This is why Paul wrote a lot about it. In Philippians and Colossians, he said we must follow along in the sufferings of Christ. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ. Well, of course, Christians face persecution and suffering today. You know, the statistics are staggering of what the last century was like by way of martyrdom and persecution across the globe. I know we've been protected from most of that. But it was the bloodiest century in the history of the church. And sadly, the 21st century started off just as bad. So we yearn for the second coming of Christ. And and the reason for the long period of continuation is because God is faithful to his word of promise. Christ won't return until the very last little lamb given to him by his father before the foundation of the world comes in. And then, the end, Christ will return. Well, these warnings of suffering are important for us to heed because we'll all face it. We all face persecution for our faith. If you are actively, publicly witnessing about your hope in the king, the true king, you face persecution and trials and suffering, you're scorned. You're despised by some, you're rejected, you're you're ridiculed, you're made fun of. This might take place in an economic persecution. Because let's face it, we all can't work for Chick-fil-A. 
Wouldn't that be great? You know, a wonderful, safe place to do business and share your faith, be a Christian. You know, what a great thing. But there are a lot of companies out there where if you manifest your heartfelt conviction that Jesus is Lord, you'll be persecuted. You'll be passed over. You won't get promoted. You maybe get fired. Of course, there's social persecution, family persecution. There's scorn and ridicule ridicule in schools and in the workplaces. Well, Jesus' words confirm our reality, but he says, you have me. Hold fast to me. Yes, there is suffering, but Christ, because of his suffering, makes sense of our suffering and empowers us to move through it. Because through our suffering, we'll be more sanctified. But part of the warning is to be prepared. Did you notice that? Verse 23, the warning to watch out for those who would draw you away from the true king. As they say, look over here, look over there. False Christs and false prophets to lead the people away from the truth. But in verse 24, he makes this glorious promise that we will know for sure when he returns. As the night sky is lit up by a big bolt of lightning all the way across the sky. You will know it when you see it. He's coming. And then in verse 25, he drives home the heart of the mystery and the wonder of this king. Before the glory comes, the suffering. Isn't that what he says? The suffering of the cross. The suffering of being rejected by his own people and the unimaginable rejection by his own father as he became sin for us on the cross. The suffering. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ can't have his bride without redeeming her. And we see the reality of this right here in the mystery of what he's saying. Jesus had a date with the cross So that he might take hold of his bride in love. You know, it wouldn't be enough for the Lord Jesus Christ to simply be incarnate, the Son of God, and walk the face of the earth in complete righteousness and holiness and then ascend to heaven and command all peoples to come to him and worship him. No, you see, for him to have subjects, for him to have members of his glorious kingdom, he would have to purchase them by his very own blood. So that before the king of kings can wear the crown of the king in glory, he has to wear the the crown of thorns and be mocked and beaten and despised and rejected and crushed on the cross. The glory and the wonder of the theology of suffering that we see that Jesus endures, that there might be a theology of glory for us in him. By his grace, he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must redeem his people, he must make the atoning sacrifice in amazing grace, he does, hallelujah. Because of Christ's passion, I want you to see that we not only know the certainty of his second coming, but we also know the certainty of what he drives home in the rest of our passage, which is the certainty of final judgment. You see, we know that there will be a final judgment because the judgment of God has already broken out on the earth at the cross. 
So through his passion, we have the witness and the testimony. There will be the second coming and there will be the final judgment. So we must embrace the cross even as we embrace the cross-centered life. But as we do, the Lord will hold us fast. Our suffering will be sanctified to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, now in our text, Jesus gives us glorious lessons and warnings from the past to point to the reality of the present and the future. That's our final thought this morning. The true king gives wise lessons on the nature and consummation of the kingdom. The true king gives wise lessons on the nature and the consummation of the kingdom. We learn wise lessons from the days of Noah and Lot that teach us a lot about our own day and age and the second coming of Christ. That's what Jesus is showing us. As we wait upon Christ's return and and the great day of judgment, we will be living life just like Noah was living in the basics of life. And then the flood. Same thing. We'll be living life The basics of life, just like Lot in his day. And then the fire fell. I mean, think about it. As Noah was living and serving by faith and building the ark and doing what he was called to do day by day, life and the rhythms of life were just carrying on, just like they are today. There was eating and drinking. There was marriage and family. There was the toil of life. There was this normal activity. And then one day Noah got on the ark. And the power of God's judgment fell in a flash. People weren't expecting it. Well, likewise, the same thing took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. The the, the regular rhythms of life. There's eating, there's drinking, there's buying, there's selling, there's farming, and there's building. And then one day, fire falls from heaven and judgment. You see, this is the point. God's final act of judgment and justice because... He has declared who we are. You know, God's a confessional God. He confesses who he is, and he confesses who we are, and who we are in our sin and in our fallenness. And in in the days of Noah in Genesis 6, this is what the Lord declares about us, the human race. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Don't we see the same things taking place today? And don't we see the same things taking place in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah? The wickedness, the perversion, the brokenness, the hostility, the violence of what it means to be human in this fallen world with all these other sinners, broken. Well, Jesus says it'll carry on like that to the very end. And then in a flash, the king of glory will come forth in the consummation of his kingdom. You see, but leading up to Christ's second coming, even while the fallen world is given over to unrighteousness, The everyday necessary activities of life carry on for you and for me, for the church, for the people of God. We eat, we drink, we labor, we toil. There's family, there's the raising up of the next generation. 
And of course, that's overshadowed by the reality of the judgment to come. But we are not those who labor without hope. We have Christ. And Christ emphasizes the reality of this. We must be a people of Christ-centered priorities in the day-in, day-out rhythms of life. The necessity of living faith, holding to him, and, and, and living a life that's shaped by kingdom values. Staying faithful in what we've been called to do and to be. We must live in the present, and yet with an eye to the future. And that brings about this balancing act of faith and action. As we're about the day-in, day-out life of hope in Christ, he calls us to live a certain way, even as we know the end is coming. You know, in the kitchen, we have that glorious verse painted on the wall, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Day by day, in the continuing growth of the kingdom of God, looking forward to the glorious consummation, we live, we love, we serve, we gather, we worship, we do good, we hear the gospel, we speak the gospel, we share the gospel, we live the life. Even while the watching world is going crazy. Christ exhorts us in verse 33 to pour out our lives. That's really what this is. Pour out your life as a drink offering. Are you seeking to have life extension? I don't think anybody in here can afford the barium chamber or whatever that the billionaires are using. But, you know, if your whole life is about living longer for you, that's the way down. But if your life is about giving back because of the glory of God's grace, that's the way up. Pour it out as a drink offering. We have the Holy Spirit, even the love of God poured in our hearts that we might endure and grow through this. Don't we need to hear stuff like that, especially in an election year? <laughs> well, as we approach each and every day, we are one day closer to the end. Every step, every day, every heartbeat, a day closer to the consummation of his kingdom. We must follow in the footsteps of our elder brother in faith, Noah. It was crazy in his day, and what did he do? He prayed, he worked, he served. We must not be given over to love of the fallen world like Lot's wife. That's the warning here. That's what Jesus says. Lot's wife, she was given over to the love of the world so that when her world, her idol, was being shaken by judgment, she looked away from the Lord and she disobeyed his command and she looked back to really the object of her heart's desire, which was the fallen world. And she became like her idol, dead, a pillar of rock-hard salt, well, just as Noah and Lot were separated from those under God's divine judgment, Christ's return will be, bring a final and very decisive separation on the day of days, the day of the Lord. And that's what Jesus gets to here. It's sobering. It's powerful. And, you know, these final verses, uh, 34 and 35, they've been used by many in the church to point to the rapture. This idea that, you know, before things get really crazy, God will... Pull out of the world his saints to deliver them before the end and the tumult and the suffering. 
well, you know, we need to allow God's whole word to speak. And so where there is an unclear passage, we need the whole word of God to be applied that we might see what is taking place. And, and I don't think Jesus is teaching on when here. Like when is the rapture? When will he take us out? But the operative word is used again and again. It's where. Where? Where will people be on the day of the Lord? Where will they be? You know, when Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a baby. But as the king of kings on his war horse with a sword ready to battle. I hope you men can get behind that. Hallelujah. He comes in righteousness to judge. And on the great day of the Lord, some will be with him, enjoying his victory and his glorious presence and peace and joy forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. But there will be others. And where they will be, will be outside. Eternal death. That's what he's driving at here because he says where the corpse is, there is the vulture. So where will you be on the day of the Lord, the great day of days? Have your sins been placed upon Christ? Do you have your hope in him? Is he the object of your faith so that he's covering you with his glorious righteousness? Have you been forgiven and declared righteous and and at peace with God the Father Almighty. See, this matters for the where part. Well, Revelation 19 shows us the great battle of the Lamb, who is the lion, who's seated upon the war horse. And Satan and all the fallen kings of the earth gather and array themselves before Christ to do battle. And he destroys them the day of days. His glorious victory. And the picture that we have in Revelation 19 is the enemies of God and his Christ are slain and they're defeated and they're crushed and the vultures are feasting on their corpses. See the connection? So I ask again, where will you be? By God's grace in Christ, will you be at the feast of the Lamb? The wedding feast of the Lamb. For his bride, the richest bear, most awesome food and drink and joy, laughter, fellowship, peace, or dead in your sins and trespasses, denying God's grace in Christ, will you be in the place of judgment and fear where the worm never dies and the vultures feast? That's the picture. That's sobering. I can't mollify that. I can't somehow make light of that. This is what Jesus is talking about. But you see, brothers and sisters, at least this hour of this day is not the day of days. And the kingdom door is wide open. And by his great and glorious gospel call of love, yet again, he calls to you and me and all of us to come on in and rest and receive Christ, to know the shepherd king, this glorious savior who seals our hearts with living faith 
If you don't have that joy, if you don't know where you're going to be on that day, cry out to him. Tell him you need him. Ask Jesus to show you his glory. He delights to answer such prayers and to give peace. The door is open. We need to repent and believe the gospel and receive the king. And turn away from pride and sin and self and rest in the Savior. Well, brothers and sisters, for us who are in the King and rejoicing in the King, what do we take away from this heavy passage? Well, we have to have spiritual vigilance. We need to live with an awareness of Christ's imminent return. And I think we're probably living more in a, a desire and awareness of you know, what's on Netflix than Jesus is coming. Because we get so easily led astray by the baubles of this world, this fallen world. Let's think about this. Meditate upon the reality of it. Jesus is coming back. Well, we need to learn how to prioritize spiritual growth and readiness over material comforts and worldly desires. To cultivate the spiritual mind and the, the heart for the Lord instead of a worldly mind and a heart for the world. And we need to understand that suffering and persecution are part of it. But the Lord will provide. We'll live the cross-centered life and he will raise us up, even in the midst of our witness, and bless us as we bear witness to the world. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, we will live lives of greater praise, greater thankfulness, day by day, and it will bear witness to the watching world that the kingdom has come. And it is coming. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, Lord Almighty, we thank you for salvation. And as we're confronted by your living word, it is sobering. Oh, Lord, we, we need to understand just the depth of our depravity and the brokenness of this world that we might have a right biblical conception of the bad news of what it means to be a son or daughter of Adam in this world. That the wages of sin is death and spiritual death is forever. But the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. So Lord, bring faith and hope and deeper repentance, and raise us up, and cause us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in your love, that you would give us the, the deeper and more profound eyes of our hearts, that our vision would see Christ high and exalted and seated upon the throne. O oh Lord, that we would live Christ-centered lives with expectation and hope, day by day struggling and striving for new obedience, and to live for you. Oh Lord, indeed we do pray for our brothers and sisters facing the great, great persecution and trials that are across so much of the globe. Those that face death and destruction and all manner of pain, separation of families, destruction of churches and homes and villages and towns because of Christ, watch over, bless, and protect your people. Fill them with greater faith, hope, and love, and help the church to 
rise up in prayer and to remember one another. And, oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you and ask that you would bless us this day as we go forth this day of resurrection and rejoicing and that our hearts and lives might bear the marks of those who are truly covered by your grace, living lives of gratitude and thankfulness. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen.